Good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Uh, tonight is December 6, 2022. Our class tonight is going to be a continuance on the International Workers' Order. We're going to be reading excerpts from a 1950 issue of the Jewish Fraternalist, which was the publication of the Jewish People's Fraternal Order, which was a section of the IWO uh, that was dedicated to the Jewish culture in the United States. I just wanted to remind everybody that uh, the IWO and the study of that is so important. Without the IWO and the language federations that came before it, there would have been no CPUSA. Let's be honest. Most of us came from that background. We came into this movement through a certain ethnic background, either a white ethnic background or a background of color, Spanish speaking, African-American. That's how we came into the, the communist movement. And that's the history of our movement. That's all, thank you. So like I said, tonight our uh, class is on the international workers order. What we're gonna be learning is we're gonna be reading from the newspaper of the JPFO, the Jewish Fraternalist, and discussing how the IWO reached people. Gedalia Sandor was a Yiddish-speaking American uh, of Jewish background who was active in the Communist Party USA in this country from the very beginning. And his beginnings, from the very beginning, he was involved with our Yiddish newspaper that we put out every day of the week called uh, the Morgan Freiheit, uh, which in English is the, the, morning, um, the morning freedom. So this is a, a magazine article he wrote. Notice the connection with Israel. We have to, our Jewish members have to be connected with two sections of the Jewish community. Those in the diaspora, which means outside of Palestine, and then those that were in Palestine. So there are two sections we have to concentrate on, not just one. At the same token, we were non-Zionist. We were definitely non-Zionist. So this is from 1950. This is during the Cold War. It's called Owls in Israel. In the summer of last year, I, meaning the author, visited many of the Israeli institutions that are supported by the Jewish People's Fraternal Order Rehabilitation and Cultural Fund. I visited our kindergartens. We had our own kindergartens in Israel that were communist and saw how the women play with the children, teach them singing and teach them dancing, which is culture. I saw the nourishing meals that the children get and the regular visits from the doctor. I saw hundreds of young workers of Tel Aviv, which is a city in, in Palestine, attending school at night, enjoying sport and cultural activities, thanks to our Jewish young fraternalist. That was our youthful Jewish group, it was called the Young Fraternalist. I received firsthand reports of how new arrivals to Israel many with concentration camp scars upon them 
received their first food from the 19 tons of food that was sent by our women's group called the Ever Lazarus Division. I just want to give a little background on that. Uh, 1950, what happened in five years before that? They opened up the concentration camps in Europe at the end of the war that the Red Army led the destruction of fascism. I want to remind people of that. And the first groups to go into the concentration camps and liberate them was the Red Army. Not the United States, the Red Army. We now know what they did inside those camps. We didn't know. It was only assumed, and there were rumors, but now we knew. All over Europe, people were displaced because they were taken out of one country by the Nazis and sent to work in another country in war camps and concentration camps. So there was a whole displacement of not only Jewish people, but also Roma and non-Jews. Roma is the, the Roma people. So this is that first period of time and this is what the communists were doing in Israel, which was just uh, proclaimed in 48. I also want to remind people, and you may not have known this, uh, this is a little of a tangent, but it's an important tangent. Three people signed the Declaration of Independence of Israel in 1948. One of the three, one was the general secretary of the Communist Party of Israel. Now, most people didn't even don't know this. So from the very begin, very beginning, communists have been involved with the leadership of forming a state in Israel. And remember that the Soviet Union and Eastern European countries, the people's democracies, at that time were the first supporters of Israeli independence. Remember that. And the reason why was because we had to break the back of British and colonialism, which was predominant in Palestine. That was our aim. And the way we did that was to break up the colonies that England had, which included Palestine, Israel. Okay. I saw the flowering of established kibbutzim. Let me tell you what the kibbutzim is. The kibbutzim were like collective farms, okay? They were set up. We had different political parties have different kibbutzim. The communists had, we had our own kibbutzim. So from the very beginning, we were involved with the kibbutzim movement. And the beginnings of a new collective settlements. I was overjoyed to learn that a group called uh, the Association for People's Culture of pioneers who live in tents, they lived in tents against, uh, against the day when their hands will build permanent housing. Perhaps our most vital contribution to the welfare of the people of Israel is our support for this Association for People's Culture. Notice the name. Doesn't talk about Jewish Association for People's Culture. Now this is very important because the new left and the left of that, uh, the current Communist Party leadership, um, their attitude, and if you heard it, Israel is a colonial state, and it's negative. That is not the view of communists at that time. And it is not our view today. So I want to separate us from the new left, from the radical left, 
analysis of Palestine. This organization, the Association for People's Culture, was founded in the stormy days of the war against fascism, against fascism, towards the end of 1942. Its members felt the need to study and to promote progressive culture, to develop fraternal, you know what that word means, friendly bonds with Jewish cultural organizations in other countries to reach out to the democratic allies all over the world. They went without bread in order to pay for the, the rent for their association center. They made furniture. They built a stage for culture. They painted the walls. They started a collection of Yiddish and Hebrew books. They're totally different, by the way, Hebrew and Yiddish. Exhibited the paintings of progressive artists. When they say the word progressive, they mean communist, left-wing. Added musical events to discussions and forums. Their choruses, they had singing choruses, became widely known. Yeah, real quick. Um if there's a quick synopsis as to why there's two Jewish approaches apart from inner and, and external and, and how to go about, what's the difference in reaching the two? If there's any major differences? just no. I have, I have no, no, there are no differences. It's where you are. If you if you're, uh, live in the United States and you lived in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, your concentration was domestic. If you lived in Palestine, your concentration was that, that country. And I use the word interchangeably, Palestine and Israel. I remember a long time ago when I first learned that um, the state of Israel was partly an idea of backed by Stalin and a, a sort of communist idea. And I think that was a class a long time ago to which Angelo, you said, we can't get into this now. Um, so I, I don't want to go too far into a rabbit hole, but I figure this is as good of a uh, place as any. To put it to a question, so where did Zionism come from and what happened to, I guess, what the good intention of the state of Israel was? Okay, Zionism does not come from the left. It came from a man named Theodore Herzl, who lived in Europe. He was a Jewish person who lived in Europe, who was a nationalist. All right? And there, it happened at the same time that another Jew named Karl Marx was offering a, a how to fight anti-Semitism for the Jewish worker. Whereas Herzl forgot about the whole idea of a worker and just talked about a Jewish people. So he put together the boss and the worker in one group. So he put in one room the lamb, the worker, and the lion, who was the boss, and expected them to get along. Of course, the lion would eat the lamb, and that's what ha happens in life. So the idea happened at the same time Zionism. There were people that came along who tried to combine the two, like they do today. So they were socialist Zionists. 
So they said we believe in socialism, but we also believe in the Jewish people as one. So there was a separation from the beginning when Comrade Stalin talks about a homeland for the Jewish people. He's told that in the framework of the Soviet Union, of the framework of the Soviet Union, that every republic in the Soviet Union, every group of peoples had their own state institutions and that the Jewish people who speak Yiddish should have their own. That's a little different. Thank you. So anyway, sounds like from what we're saying and talking about how really sounds like the whole idea that the state of Israel started, it sounds like it really was started off. It's the state of Israel becoming a state really originally came from the Soviet Union and Stalin was no, really that, pushing that a lot incorrect. more. That is incorrect. I wanted to correct that. It had to do so, with the, the party's position on British imperialism. We were to destroy British imperialism and colonialism in that part of the world. Would you and say so that the Zionists hijacked it? Yeah. The Zionists hijacked it is what happened. Correct. Right? They did and for their own it. reason. That is correct. Yeah. And just a little bit into the background of the relation between British imperialism and Zionism, it goes back even before Theodore Herzl. Um, there was actually a really uh, a group the, of uh, British uh, of the British ruling class that called themselves British Israelites. They weren't Jews. They were like really anti-Semitic British people. Um, but that's kind of with the origins of like Zionism, be, like even before Herzl. Yeah, I mean, Zionism has always been a tool of like the British Empire specifically to divide the peoples of Palestine, Jewish, Muslim, Christian. And it's it's really unfortunate what happened in uh, the state of Israel and in general, because when it started out, um, a lot of people were communists. I mean, you had the kibbutz movement, which represented a big economic part of the state of Israel. You had a lot, you had a uh, Habash, which is um, currently the mass popular front um, socialist Arab Israeli organization that's communist in Israel. And you also had a strong communist party there. Um, but we have to keep in mind, comrades, um, a big reason why um, the commun- a lot of communist Jews in Europe were like, or a big reason why Israel took the way that it did was because a- a- almost the Jewish left was devastated by the Holocaust. I mean, the first people to go into the concentration camps were the communists and then the Jews. And there were a lot of Jewish members of communist parties because the communist parties in Europe at that time were the only parties that weren't like viciously anti-Semitic and in the Soviet Union, anti-Semitism was outlawed. So it's, yeah, it, it's really tragic what happened um, in Israel and like to these, uh, and to these Jewish people who were communists. Um, as you said about Yiddish Jews, how about the Jews that speak Ladino and Giz and Yisid? Um, what's it was basically the Sephardic Jews, the Minson Jews, and the Jews from Ethiopia who don't speak Yiddish? Yeah, the whole thing was based, the majority of the people in the Jewish community came from Europe at that time, and the majority of them spoke Yiddish as their mother, they call it the mother tongue in English, it's called the mother tongue. Uh, they spoke French. They lived in France. They spoke French. In Germany, they spoke German. Um, in, in the Netherlands, they spoke Dutch. 
but their primary language of all the Jews in the world came from Europe, and that was Yiddish. That's all. It doesn't mean that uh, others are neglected. That's all. Now, remember, this article that was written in 1950 was written, uh, the main, we're using this article as an example, as an example of the work that Jewish communists did in the uh, movement, in the general movement that dealt with ethnic groups. That's why we're reading this. We just happen to be talking, if this article happens to be about the Middle East and Israel, but that's not what we're here for tonight. So I guess we'll just read one more section of it and then go on to what, why we're here tonight. The women, there was a women's organization, everything communists do with organizations, not as individuals, was called the Irgun, I'm gonna call it what it is in our language, Progressive Women's Organization. They set up kindergartens for the children of the refugee. Remember, that's the world we're living in at the time, the refugee and soldiers during Israel's war for independence. It continued and added to the kindergartens that happened after 1945, after the war, with the Jewish people's fraternal order help, and does a fine job of caring for the children of low-paid workers, not the wealthy, and of helpless immigrants. It also campaigns against all forms of chauvinism. This is a communist understanding, all forms of chauvinism and all forms of superiority. It seeks reforms in the religious civil laws to give women full equality in all family matters. It insists that women receive equal pay for equal work. It is especially active in the campaign for free education. In the interest of Jewish Arab unity, the Progressive Women's Organization maintains close contact with the Democratic Arab Women of Nazareth. Now, I just want to mention this. Don't let's get into this. It's important to understand this. This women's organization was a member of the Women's International Democratic Federation. You all should know that. Next thing, the youth. The youth section of this Jewish organization set itself the task of organizing educationals, and that's very important, sports, sports and cultural activities for the young people in the cities who, as a role, work too hard and earn too little to go to school or to pay for any kind of entertainment. So we had our own ways of creating cultural entertainment formations and especially our dance groups and choruses. That's big in the communist left, by the way. In the summer of 48, the organization that we're talking about founded a weekly newspaper in Yiddish called Frei Israel, Free Israel, to stand guard vigilantly over, over the democracy because it is the only road to true national freedom, to strengthen the ties of our young country with our democratic allies all over the world. And that would include the socialist countries, by the way. 
to defeat the worst enemies of our independence, who was British imperialism, and of all freedom-loving people, the imperialists. The circulation of this newspaper increased enormously with the influx of new immigrants that came into that area who found it, who found in this newspaper, Fry Israel, Free Israel, which spoke for their needs, their concerns, and it spoke in their own language, which was Yiddish, and acquainted them with their new land and its progressive movement. I met with the editorial board and we discussed how we could help this newspaper appear three times a week, and that was a victory. And then the next thing we'll end with this, there was praise for the group in the United States called the Jewish People's Fraternal Order. In a bulletin that was published in December 1949, the association Aguda told the people of Israel, says one of the first organizations to establish fraternal ties with the Agula group was the Jewish People's Fraternal Order in the United States. The JPFO, that's what we called it, sent us significant sums of money for activities and sent the newspaper Free Israel, a Yiddish linear type machine, which was needed to put out a printed paper, which made its work much easier. And there's the women's organization of the JPO, which was called the Emma Lazarus Division, that 19 tons of various foodstuffs. So we're going to stop it there. But you understand the point of this article is that this information was given in the news in the magazine called the Jewish Paternalists. The, that's the idea of this, not to concentrate on Israel. This article just happens to be on there. In last week, I asked if there's anything comparable to the IWO today, which the answer was no, we have to start from scratch, which I understand. Um, so the first short question is, so therefore, and not to get too much into like tactics, but do we just grow our mass orgs to try and build up something similar to uh, the IWO? And the second question is, if none of this exists here in America, does anything similar to it exist anywhere internationally um, that no. we could learn? Yeah. The, answer, the answer to that is that world of the ethnic work by the mm -hmm. communists has been allowed to wither away. I use that word, allowed to wither away. The idea being is that we're no longer immigrants. We're no longer from this group. Now we're part of a new idea. And the Soviet Union was called the new Soviet man. But in the United States, it was this idea we're all Americans. We all come from a melting pot, but we don't longer have any feet in that melting pot. And that was incorrect. And that was pushed when I was in the party I remember being in, an, in a room with Comrade Gus Hall discussing that, exactly what we're talking about. And that was the answer I was getting, was given. Just on the Palestine issue, if we ever vi revisit the Soviet anti-Zionist commission, there was a Jewish commission led by Javid Dragunsky, the Soviet Jewish general, 
they had a so the Soviet Union, I guess we could say, definitely maintained the uh, racial or or minority group organizations because there was a Jewish, a communist Jewish Soviet organization. Because I know, obviously, we don't have an organization like this these days, but you know, obviously, we can learn a lot from a group like this, and you know, there are certainly a lot of different groups and new immigrants or uh, people in marginalized communities that certainly can benefit with someone, especially a group like us, willing to do the kind of work that we're seeing here, you know, establish contacts, uh, help set up independent printing presses, building support and solidarity. So I just kind of wonder if there's any, like, immediate goals, either Comrade General Secretary is taking from this or indeed anyone, about maybe some work that we can do in the short term. Uh, from this. Thank you. Yeah, my answer to that, uh, my answer to that is like in everything else in life, we got to start in the beginning. Uh, there's an old song uh, from The Sound of Music, uh, which I it stayed in my mind. We got to start from the very beginning, a very good place to start. When we count, we say one, two, three. We start from the beginning. When we sing, we, we say, do re me. So we got to start from the beginning, and that's what we're doing. We allowed this to uh, elapse, and now we see the ramifications. The best example is Ukraine. We do not have a Ukrainian organization anymore to fight fascist Ukrainians. It's better to have communist Ukrainians fight fascist Ukrainians than to have communist Russians fight fascist Ukrainians. Why? Because that brings up a whole ethnic rivalry. But when it comes from inside your family, it's different. It's just a difference of opinion. So, and a fascist Italian has to be fought, in my opinion, with a communist Italian. And that's the way it always has worked. Yeah, I just want to stress how useful an organization like the IWO would be today. I mean, if you look at like what happened with COVID, um, the complete lockdown and shutdown of society that was imposed on us by the capitalist class, the loss of jobs, businesses, all this stuff, and especially the impact on students. I mean, I am like, I, I'm I, like, I've heard stories from uh, some comrades and even some people who I know personally who were like, you know, volunteering to be like interns or like, you know, doing teacher, te doing teaching jobs, being tutors. I mean, like it, it, the, 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 the developmental delay that this is that COVID has put on American youth and like, especially young children, like between the ages of like kindergarten to even like the fifth grade, it's astounding. I mean, I remember when I was a senior in high school, um, we had a bunch of uh, freshmen who they got shut down, the, the economy and the lockdowns happened in seventh grade and they go from seventh grade to all of a sudden they're high schoolers and it, it they, they still act like seventh graders they they haven't grown up like i mean imagine if we had an, a community-based organization that would you know be able to have young people conduct sports do choirs engage in several like constructive activities if we could have a women's organization if we could like if we could have like a social welfare organization that would take care of pensioners and 90 seconds comrades it's just 
we, there's a lot of room for it in the United States. We especially need it not only for like the American people, but for also oppressed nations within America. Um, it's it's definitely something we need to explore and revive. I'd, I'd like to add to that one sentence. The world is composed of different countries around the globe. They all have their own culture. They're all part of an ethnic fabric that brings together humanity into one piece of cloth. We need to be involved with every single one of them. Imagine the attacks on People's China from a group like Golem Fang, which supposedly is a cultural formation. We need to have our own cultural formation in the Chinese community in this country that's led by communists. That's what we need. We need to do the same thing with the Ukraine, the same thing to fight fascism in Italy today with Mussolini's relatives that are in power. Um, it's best that it comes from inside your family. Who is better to criticize problems of your family but people in your family? When it comes from outside your family, you become antagonistic. You think they're attacking your family. But if it comes from an inside the family criticism, it's looked at differently. And that's what, the way we have to look at it. Yeah, I just like to say that, you know, if you're not reaching out to these communities, the right wing is, the capitalists Correct. are. I mean, think about the Boy Scouts of America and the Girl Scouts of America, all these different, eth you know, th they get involved within the local communities. They're getting the youth. They're bringing their youth to summer camps where they teach them their values, right? Right. That's, those are lost opportunities for us. And what's the anytime anyone criticizes Israel for anything, what's the first thing that they accuse you of? Anti-Semitism. Exactly. Being anti-Semitic, right? So who else do you have to bring in then but Jewish communists to come and criticize? And even then, they'll probably still say you're anti-Semitic, but that at least then that argument won't hold as much water, right? Thank you. Um, if we don't reach out to these communities, they will, and then they will turn against us, and they won't be there for us. Yeah, real quick, and this is one of those kind of reality check things, um, especially now as it's uh, especially in Canada, it's clear that these uh, organizations don't exist anymore. Do uh, donations, dues, money. Well, I assume how it generally works is the Communist Party has this pool of money and then they can start Department A, Department B. So it sounds corporate, but what it will really help is money. Thank you. The point is the subject matter is not Israel. It is not Palestine. It's the United States. It's New York City. Stuyvesant Town was built, was built after World War II. It was to give housing to low-income people. In fact, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg for a while lived in Stuyvesant Town. Uh, you should know that. But the point is, notice what it says for whites only. So it's bringing in the whole idea of racism. And that's all you really need to know about this particular article, in my opinion, that Jewish communists talk about racism, number one. That's all. So this is by Max Taber. says, on any sunny day, the playgrounds and sidewalks of Stuyvesant Town team with children. Search among the thousands of little faces until you find Harding Hendricks. You will know him the moment you set eyes on him. He is the only black child living and playing in Soyvestant Town, the town built by the Metropolitan Life 
and subsidized by the city of New York, and quotes, for whites only. How does it feel to be the Hendrixes, one black family among 8,600 white families? How do they stand up to the knowledge that the most powerful landlord in the world is moving to relentlessly house them? Their little boy, he is five years old, seems to take his new world for granted. The only special emotion he seems to inspire in his playmates is envy for his handsome tricycle. Hardeen Sr., 27, a warehouse worker who studies commercial art in his spare time, and Raphael, 23, his attractive wife, say that it is perfectly natural for us to be living here. The Hendrixes seem quietly cheerful about their future in Stuyvesant Town, even though there is plenty of cause for anxiety. The Metropolitan Life Insurance Company has a policy it does not list, Jim Crow. We all know what the Jim Crow policy is. As a huge landlord and investor in the South, it draws super profits from its Jim Crow policy. And understandably, the company is eager to sell this policy to every city in the North. For three years, New Yorkers have increasingly stormed at the bigotry and prejudice presented by the Jim Crow walls of the Stuyvesant town. Committees, petitions, mass meetings, and city council resolutions have denounced the drawing of a color line around 24 square blocks in the heart of Manhattan. Within the project itself, tenants trained to believe in equality of opportunity have felt and said that Stuyvesant Town gives democracy the lie in tons of stone and steel. Every tenants poll showed that the great majority favored the admission of black families. Then a simple human act made a chink in the wall and the first black family, the Hendrixes, moved in. Last summer, on a Hudson River boat, Raphael Hendricks told Jesse Kessler, an organizer in her husband's union, Local 65, about the broken ceilings and rotten walls of the Harlem apartment. She told him how the landlords had, who had vacancies refused to rent them when they saw her color. Jesse, whose union was practiced the principle that black and white can work and live by, side by side, warmly urged her to move into his apartment in Stuyvesant Town. My family will be away for the summer, he said. Just move in. The Hendrixes talked it over. Until four years ago, they had lived in the deep south. They had seen Jim Crow at its worst, had no illusions about metropolitan life since its monopoly is all over the south. They knew if they accepted the Kessler offer, they would be walking into a metropolitan principality where even the police are on the payroll of the insurance company. Then they looked at their Harlem apartment, at the lights that wouldn't even work, and the dangerously exposed electric wires the landlord wouldn't fix. And they talked about the rats that had so plagued their son, they had sent him south to stay with his grandmother until they could find a decent place to live in. That decided us, said Mrs. Hendricks. The rats and the fact that our boy was safe with his grandmother in case anything out of the way should happen if we moved in. Let's take a chance, she said to her husband. Last August 4th, the Hendrickses moved into Stuyvesant Town as the rent-free guests of a Jewish family. It was like living in a fishbowl, Mrs. Hendricks now recalls. 
Reporters and photographers recorded the unique event of a black family living in Stuyvesant Town. It was front page news. It was also open house for democracy and many dropped in to wish the Hendrixes welcome. A next door neighbor, Francis Smith, exclaimed, this is swell, this is swell. It gives us a chance to feel like human beings again. Even though, even those who had refused to sign a petition for the admission of black families into Stuyvesant Town reacted warmly to the fact that a black family had actually taken up residence among them. There were celebrations outside of Stuyvesant Town too. One was held just outside its walls and the celebrants were tenants of the slums. Mrs. Hendricks addressed the smiling men and women who overflowed the hall into the streets and after she spoke, many women pressed around her and congratulated her upon, the, upon her glick. Nothing, absolutely nothing, made us feel better than knowing that the people who have to live in the rotten tenements are glad for us, she said afterwards. Um, hi, I, uh, I don't uh, remember what the word glick means. I assume that's from Yiddish. It was in the article, glick. They congratulated Mrs. Hendricks on her click. So I assume it means something like that. Yeah, it was probably Yiddish. Probably, yeah. The point is, uh, I'd like to mention, the article is in a Jewish magazine. That's the point. In a Jewish magazine, we just don't talk about Jewish issues. We talk about issues that involves other groups. It's not chauvinist. So other groups were racism that were perpetuated by uh, the system. And the pronunciation of the, of the name of the town, I want to mention to everybody, is Stuyvesant. We even have a high school in New York called Stuyvesant High School. It was named after one of the leaders of colonial New York way back in history. That's all. Thank you. I thought that it was a really amazing piece of solidarity that a Jewish family would reach out and help out, you know, just another family that was in need and directly challenge, you know, um, Jim Crow laws, because obviously as a Jewish family, they themselves have experienced it. Um, but I think the most unbelievable part was that a working class family has two houses that they can afford in New York City that they can just give out to someone else over the summer. So I think that's pretty unbelievable. Thank you. <laughs> That's how bad things have gotten, actually. <laughs> uh, yes, thank you. So, again, a lot of comrades have mentioned this uh, point already, but I think it's very important that uh, we work hard in our publications to build solidarity across different regions. Um, I, you know, again, it's one of many ways that the ruling classes work to divide us, getting us to think of each other's, you know, different groups. You know, we come from uh, this group and we come from that group. And uh, Comrade Angela was mentioning earlier, you know, we don't really think of ourselves belonging to uh, ethnic communities um, as much anymore in the U.S. And that is a good thing in a sense that, you know, we don't have as much discrimination against the different uh, or as many of the old immigrant groups as there were. But we still see, obviously, new groups being persecuted today. So it's important when we're doing our work that we work hard to build that solidarity, you know, and if you know, I'm writing a newspaper in the South, you know, that doesn't mean that I can't talk about what's going on in other parts of the country or indeed internationally, because the whole point we're trying to build in 
the working classes, you know, we're all the same because we're united by our exploitation. You know, people that live in our own country are very different because they're the exploiters. And that's a very difficult thing for a lot of people to understand. But, you know, this article is a great example of how to do that. So thank you. Thank you, comrade. And I also want to say that when I was compiling uh, this this class and going through the Jewish fraternalist, and since we're definitely not going to be able to get all the way through this article, uh, basically it started out with this article just describing the Hendrixes moving into Cyberson Town and how they were treated. And then later on, there's another article after that that basically says, how can Jewish and like how can Jewish white working class people help the black community and work with them and the class struggle? So it was all about trying to unite these different ethnic communities against the ruling class. And that's definitely something that we need to see uh, come back into uh, our present time. Okay, very interesting. Um, from what I've observed and trying to absorb for this class, bottom line is, is whether you're Jewish, Person of color, white, we're all human beings, period. We all want to be treated like human beings. And I think maybe that's part of the message, correct me if I'm wrong, Angelo, is that we're trying to base here is that we all need, we're all part of the human race. We all have our needs that have to be met on a daily basis, such as housing, food, equality, jobs, security, etc. So I'm feeling that the whole synopsis of what we're learning tonight about these organizations is the fact is is that if we don't take care of each other who will yeah and i want to add to that the class component is important because the zionists for example say we're all together the jewish boss who lives in a castle and the jewish worker who lives in a unheated flat uh, and that's not, and because we're all human beings, we don't say exactly that. What we do say what brings us together is our class. And the vast majority of people in any society are wage earners, are working class. The vast majority, like 92, 98%. And therefore, we're trying to bring back together and use these stories like this that all the workers have much more in common. And uh, you're correct, we need to help our black workers and we need to help our uh, Arab workers and et cetera, that kind of thing. Thank you. Uh, hi, uh, I just wanna say, I don't think there's any problem with, uh, with people having ethnic groups, uh, especially in the cities. It's, it's characteristic that the cities have different ethnic groups in them. And so uh, it teaches us that we can have, we can organize ethnic groups and, and the group that Jake is organizing is along those lines. So I think that's a good idea. Thank you. So the next part is from the Emma Lazarus division. So this is on uh, women in the uh, JPFO. So I can go ahead and read this. It's with the chapters. Uh, Tom's River, New Jersey is a small community without big city agitation. Yet world events are so dynamic, communities are stirred to action no matter the size. Just think, over 100 guests appeared there to celebrate the centenary of Emma Lazarus with June Gordon as speaker. 
The Jersey Observer described in detail a Chanukah party. We know that that's Hanukkah for children held by our church, our Jersey City chapter. The absent guest of honor was an adopted war orphan living in our home in Andresi, France. Our Jersey friends seem very modest when it comes to a write-up. I have ha I have had to glean their names from the clipping. Here are a few of the good workers: Hilda Freeman. President, sisters, Faith, Lewentman, Livingstone, Selnick, and Monheim. The Bensonhurst chapter has one pet responsibility which they carry through with unbelievable warmth and loyalty. Since their adoption of a son in our home in France, there has been a steady stream of gifts and letters across the Atlantic. This son, George, writes his godmothers regularly in such fashion as would convince the most callous how necessary it is for us to maintain this home, to adopt these children, to give them a sense of belonging. Much thanks goes to Sister Sarah Ring, who corresponds with George in French. Buffalo saw a splendid brotherhood rally held jointly by our division and a committee to combat discrimination. Over 125 black and white visitors came. Six new members joined us. The Bronx District has just completed a very fine leadership training class. This district still ranks highest in its classes in general cultural work. Brooklyn too has completed a leadership training class. Over 300 came to a brotherhood rally held jointly with the lodges. Mrs. Eslanda Robeson reported on her recent visit to Europe and China. And Eslanda Robeson was the wife of Paul Robeson. She was a civil rights leader as well. From an outpouring of reports from Los Angeles, I have, I have to give but the barest picture of really good work. Our far west district is conscientious about selling literature. There is planning of cultural work and Sonia Aroff, the cultural director, deserves thanks for her good organization in this work. Sarah Berman of chapter 704 describes a series of educationals around book reviews, Chanaka, and Karim parties. She ends her report with warmth. Our sisters are most appreciative and eager to learn. Los Angeles puts out a most beautiful, professional-looking quarterly bulletin, thanks to its, letter, thanks to its editor, editor, Mildred Simon, and her co-workers. Regina Cutler, of chapter 51 tells of the emphasis they put on self-education. They sold lots of literature, and I noticed 100 songbooks were listed too. Good, songs always help the work. We worked on legislative issues, standing with tables near markets, collecting signatures against anti-Semitism, racial discrimination, child care centers. They have worked out a fine system of cooperating with the Schul teacher in various ways. Gertrude Freeland of the chapter seven makes an important point in the broad variety of subjects they take for their educationals. They have a library for their members. Frida King of 251 writes, I am happy to report that we have carried out a fine cultural program touching on many current events. They encourage sisters to conduct their own educationals. Rose Lipton's report of chapter 250 lists 20 lectures during 1949, not counting a number of discussions led by sisters themselves. 
And on the right there, we have something that was included with this article. It was that May 20th was their 20th anniversary celebration at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Yeah, I'd and like this, to speak on, on this, comrade, if we can. Go ahead. Thank you for doing this, because this is an excellent model of what a mass organization is supposed to be doing. This should be followed by MPD. This should be followed by RE. This should be followed by um, the American Veterans Union. This is the way it's done. You, it's very simple. They don't talk about hammers and sickles and red flags, but they're doing all the work of the party. And this imagine and Madison Square Garden, just one of our mass groups, the Jewish one, had their own anniversary celebration for 20 years. This is a perfect model. As you're reading this, I'm smiling and I'm saying that's the way to go. Thank you. Yeah, and I just want to say, too, that it's really good to actually reach out to the people and explain what's happening in these different groups. And you hear you hear things about uh, the, the Chanaka and Parim parties. You hear things about how they're helping out uh, with, with, with literature and, and signatures on petitions. They're actually telling people we're out there doing things and it invites people. It, it, it makes people want to go ahead and get involved with these groups because they see things happening. And that's definitely something that we need to carry out uh, in our mass orders. And, and this teacher or this history teaches us this. Uh, there's another part to this that's about the personality sketch of the Seagate chapter. Personality sketch of the Seagate chapter. There is a small rounded stretch of beach and community at the very outer edge of Coney Island called Seagate. Right. This gate literally encloses a middle-class community. One soon becomes aware that, there, that here live people, Jewish in the main, who would be content to leave the rumbling world outside their privately policed wall. Yet the echoes of a rumbling, rumbling old world have penetrated this seemingly apathetic enclosure to pierce the conscience of a group of women whom we can now call our sisters. Even though this chapter is but three weeks old, they already have 35 new members. I just want you all to, to, to take that in your mind. What if our mass orgs got 35 new members in three weeks? It was 10 above zero when I visited them. Their warm spirits soon melted me. When I asked President Sonia Teichner how she managed to, do such a, managed to do such a remarkable job, her always smiling face turned serious. I thought it would be very difficult. There are so many Jewish organizations here, but I realized none was progressive. After several talks with Leah Nelson, I said, well, let's try. What can we lose? The very first meeting we had 11 women. I soon discovered a wit of wits in Sylvia Sharfen, who is the correspondence secretary. She keeps the spark of gaiety running through the, through the meeting. Blonde, boyish, alert, petty Potros, their financial secretary, came next. The part of the program I care for most is culture. I am interested in learning. I want to know more about Jewish culture and world events. Anne Mankoff is cultural director. She is a young, soft-spoken, impressively dignified woman who smiles easily. She too felt strongly about our cultural program and jestingly commented 
that her reading habits are changing to include her first good piece of literature in a long while, the Jewish fraternalist, which is, of course, yeah. what we're she felt that the Jewish community was left wide open and unarmed without a progressive Jewish right. organization. Right. She is working on the first important project, a shelf of books for the local public library. And then Molly Metzger spoke. Even though her tones are soft and velvety, her high-pitched feelings and strong words correspond to the times we live in. The past few years, I spent in isolation from the world didn't make me happy. Since I came back, I found a strange new program, a fighting Jewish women's organization, a rich cultural life to be proud of. I had begun to feel that we were a little too late in Seagate, but we are not late. We just weren't there to do the job for a while. We will now go places. We may get other Jewish organizations closer to us if we really work talking about coalition building with the other jo Jewish organizations. I would have liked to have met Molly Pollock, Gloria Rudes, Jenny Lerner, all good recruiters and workers. It is worth mentioning the happy fact that Sonia Teichner collected $25 from a friend and Molly Mesker $15 from Italian women workers in her shop for striking minors relief. And then we have this part here that goes ahead and shows the other newspapers that we had back in the day. This is just some of them that were related to the IWO. So we have, of course, other Jewish publications like the Daily Forwards, which is Daily Forwards. The Spark was another Jewish publication. And then there was one, Der Hammer, that was in the late 30s. We also have a Carpatho-Russian paper and there was another one that I found, El Curioso, or El, yeah, El Curioso, which was a satirical Spanish publication of the Cervantes a Spanish Society that was part of the IWO. This is excellent. Um, this is Angelo. I'm so glad that we can, we need to get this more out to other people in, in, in our party alone, that the reading of how the, the meeting went in Seagate is a perfect example of how I worked in Staten Island in the mass movement. We did the same thing in Staten Island that they did at Seagate. I happen to know of Seagate, by the way, um, area of Brooklyn. And I was, I was so happy to see the word Bensonhurst. That's my place I was born, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. That's the area also that I met my first communist, my school teacher in second grade, Ethel Levine, a Jewish communist. So this, this article when you read it was really good for me personally, thank you. My question is what were the leadership training camps that were mentioned a few sections ago? And would it be beneficial to our party and our mass orgs if we conducted something like that? Also, I really like the little phrase, we are not late. We just weren't there to do the job for a little while. That is and perfect. we're here now and we yes. have a lot of work to do. That's all I have. Correct. Thank you. I imagine that they were camps to help, help teach you the different qualities and characteristics that a leader should have in the mass movement. Correct. But that's just my assumption. And remember, we had camps. 
It was very big. We had summer camps all over the country that were run by the mass movements. Uh, one of them still exists today. It's called Camp Kindlin, which was the Yiddish-speaking uh, camp for children. But yeah, that's where we did it. We were comfortable. We sat by the lake, etc. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just think that um, the importance of cultural organizations is just about building bonds with communities. And so whenever we start to think about what it is that we want to do with our mass organizations, the only thing that we really have to kind of consider about how to build a program is thinking about what bonds us together. What activities do we like to do? And then just because someone might be a, a different race, a different culture, anything like that, we're still kind of bonded together that, by that. We like food, we like music, we like dancing, we like sports. And that's just all that it is. You're basically giving working class people a vacation into another culture because we certainly don't have the money for world jet setting travel. And so that's the reason why I feel like that cultural organizations are incredibly important for working class people. Uh, maybe it's me, maybe it's something, but if anybody has some guidance, everything works out culturally, right? We joke about beats and this and that. And as soon as you mention politics, then they're like, oh, you're Italian. But uh, does anybody have some answers to this? Maybe I should need to be more subtle. No, uh, I have had, uh, I don't follow exactly what you're saying, but you notice in the writing of that Seagate, the person who wrote the article, who's a very good writer, by the way, they describe the individual characteristics of each of the women. I thought that was really interesting because you have to be a mensch. In Yiddish, the word mensch is a leader of men. In other words, a leader of people. A mensch is a person who knows how to be a chameleon, uh, not ideologically, but socially. So you're around certain people, you act the way they understand. Other people, you act the way like a chameleon does. But um, I have, that has been one of my, and I think people in this party and this class could agree to that. Many people have said that of me, that I'm able to get along with people on a personal level. And um, that's what is the key to bringing people to us. You have to be a good person. If you're a good person, you're a good asset to the party. I hope I answered some of the questions. Yeah, and I'd like to go ahead and, and respond to the comrade question. The, if the question is, uh, how do you kind of weigh being political with uh, being community oriented with doing the mass org stuff? I actually have an example of this. Um, in Coos Bay, when I was working with Southern Oregon Coast Pride, uh, which is, it's a very liberal LGBT plus oriented local group. I came in and, and I actually came in for a, a political uh, campaign to take off a fascist for mayor, but I still helped them organize pride. I still helped them in their uh, running of what was called a gender affirmation closet, which gave LGBT plus people all the different things that they might need, all the products. Um, so I helped them run that kind of uh, community stuff. And it was largely community oriented. And by a couple of months of me being involved with that, um, they knew my politics. They even knew that I was a member of the PCUSA. Uh, but because of how involved I was in the community and because of how they knew me as a person, uh, they didn't they didn't care about that. 
Uh, matter of fact, they'd ask me sometimes on political issues. They'd be like, how do you feel about this? Um, I remember when they brought up that they were going to have an anarchist zine, if you know what a zine is, at their event. And they asked me, how do you feel about this? And I, I, I just read it and it didn't, you know, it wasn't preaching anarchism. It was just preaching different things for the LGBT plus community. And I said, okay, this is good. Um, and, and, you know, they were able to go ahead and have that there. And we had a really good pride event. And I even had uh, MPD and RE there at that event. We built a good coalition with them. So as long as you're working with these people on kind of a human to human level, uh, you can have the, the, the politics with it and it not really disrupt your work. But you also need to be careful because that was just my case. And not every organization is going to be uh, friendly to you if they know that you're a communist. So you just have to kind of take it by a case-by-case -case basis as well. Yes, yeah, so I want to follow up of, of uh, what you said, and also particularly what, what Comrade Sec General Secretary was talking about. Remember, we're talking about the, uh, the, the heyday of the Communist Party and uh, of the ethnic uh, groups. One of the uh, reasons why the Communist Party was so successful is because of, as Andrew said, these ethnic groups. Many of these people came to America, and and sometimes some of them even to the, to the day they died never even spoke English. Some of the uh, older people never spoke English, and and it was the the ethnic groups and the Jews who, who spoke Yiddish, the Ukrainians, uh, and even the Germans and the Scandinavians, and they basically they came and they and they and they helped these people. And, they, and the organizations uh, such as the tennis organizations always had people that spoke the languages, that went out and these people spoke their language and almost made them feel like they were back home. And as they, they many of them even gravitated towards the party uh, and felt affinity towards the party. And the party always kept this ethnicity uh, you know, uh, you could be a, a proud communist and still be a, a proud Spanish communist. Uh, one of the things I just want to throw in, one of the great tacticians and theorists of communism was Stalin. And Stalin during World War II didn't ask the Soviet people to defend communism. He asked them to defend the motherland. That was the theme. Defend them, your motherland is attacked, defend the motherland. And everybody that fought and died and overran Two minutes. the Germans and went all the way to Berlin was fighting for the motherland. I uh, put a link in the chat about Bayro Bajan, which may be of interest to people. Comrade Stalin made major ideological contributions to the idea of uh, racial or ethnic nationality and uh, how to maintain equality between ethnic nations within a socialist sort of superstate. Um, it's worth looking at his writings on that. But one expression of that was a creation of a Jewish Soviet socialist republic in the Soviet Union called Bayro Bajan uh, in the 1930s. And not only is it interesting for all the reasons we would find it interesting it's also interesting because, and it's a little anachronistic to say it, but it challenges the idea that a Jewish homeland has to be located in what is Palestine. 
And that's why I said I didn't want to like get us off track. But if you're interested in those kinds of things and where the communists were prior to and during the creation of Israel, you might take a look at Bajan. I find most people have tended not to hear of it, not to have heard of it. That's it. Thank you, comrade. Uh, and that reminds me too, that was uh, Biro Bedzan and the Jewish Autonomous Republic was in last year's issue of uh, the New Masses, which is our, cur- our cultural publication for the PCUSA. And we actually are gonna have a couple of articles uh, in there this year that talk about culture again. One of them is actually the multiculturalness uh, of the Soviet Union at its beginning. You know, all these different cultures that were included Russians, Uzbeks, Ukrainians, Kyrgyz, uh, Azerbaijanis, all the way down the list. And so, you know, uh, Comrade Lenin and Stalin made really good contributions to uh, those cultural communities. I want to show you the Ukrainian paper that we put out in the party. Look at the ad. This is from 1993. Can you see the ad? Arrow Park. That's where we're having our Congress, where we had our first Congress. Um, I wanted you to see that. This is what we did. Can you see the term? We had bazaars to raise money for the mass organizations, Ukrainian goods, or uh, artware and things like that. So that's what we did. Um, But I wanted you to see Arrow Park. Uh, The next meeting of the Ukrainian Women's and Men's Educational a society of the Ukrainian American League. This is what we had. Um, and we allowed that to die. I happen to know that for a fact because I was involved. And uh, one woman, an old woman who put out our Russian newspaper in the Russian language named Ruski Golos, Russian word. Ruski Golos was, was a paper that was started after 1917 by Russians in this country. It was a pro-Soviet paper. When I told her I wanted to get involved um, in the 1970s, uh, she told me, nah, I'm telling you for old people. You, what do you want to, you're not even rushing. This is the, the negative was, that was in the old timers who were leaving. They had this negative, but I suggest, uh, I wanted to work seconds. in, I wanted to work in the, the magazine Jewish, uh, Jewish affairs, and uh, the people who I knew told me, oh, we can't have him. He's a Stalinist. So I just want you to know that we need to be none. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be Ukrainian. You don't have to be Polish. You don't have to be Italian to work in any of the ethnic groups that we're building. Thank you. Yeah, how you doing? I'm glad we had a chance to go through this. On tonight's class, the Ethnics and the IWO, International Workers' Order, it was so successful that the government in the McCarthy period made its prime objective was to destroy the mass groups, not the party, the mass groups. That's very interesting because the mass organizations reached tens of thousands more than the party did. That's very interesting. And that's why the organization, the government was out to decapitate and to cut the head off all of our mass organizations. Once they cut the head off, they felt the organization would wither and die like a snake. Okay, why? If you cut the head off a snake, it dies. And that's what they felt. 
So the IWO and the idea of mass organizations in the ethnic community needs to be revisited and rebuilt. We're doing it in the Jewish Commission. Uh, we need to do it in all the other groups. All you need is three people to begin a mass organization in a group. We need one um, among other groups in the party. We need one in the Italian community for a total example. I need to work with two other people that are willing to give me some of their time so we can rebuild an Italian formation, an Italian American formation that would be in the Italian language and the English language. And we can put out our positions on what's going on in Italy and in this country. The issue of the mafia, the issue of the uh, racism in the Italian American community is very strong. And we have to fight that. And the best way to do it is with a mass group in the Italian American community. And that's all I wanted to say. Uh, thank you very much.